2: Hi, I'm Brews News editor Matt Kierkegaard, and welcome back to another year of conversations about beer and the brewing industry. I hope you all had a happy and safe festive season. This week we're catching up with Richard Kelsey and Jeff Hewins from online beer retailer Beer Cartel. Late last year, Beer Cartel released its results and advised that it was moving towards an online only business model, closing its Artemis store. With more than a decade of experience watching the growth of craft beer and the various fashions that it is thrown up, from rare imports and growlers to a move towards local craft beer, as well as the significant jump in online during the pandemic, I was interested to hear how these trends are impacting the decisions that a comparatively small online retailer is making. Beer Cartel also raised nearly $1.5 million on a valuation of $20 million 18 months ago. Providing annual financial reports is a requirement for businesses that raise funds in this manner, and it provides a window into the state of the craft beer industry. And so we have a chat about how the business is going and look at the results, as well as their decision to crowdfund and the benefits that it has given them. It's a great chat, and as always, I thank Richard and Jeff for being part of that conversation. I hope you find it as valuable as I did. Richard Kelsey, Jeff Houns, welcome to Beers Conversation. Thanks for having us. We're going to have to start scheduling, um, you know, more end of year conversations because this actually wasn't part of the, the, the schedule, but all of the results and announcements seem to be coming out that we want to dig a little bit deeper into than we can in print. So thanks for uh, joining at a very busy time of year for you. It's okay. But big news this week: um, that came out that the bricks and Mortars store has uh, you, you've announced that you're going to close that and go exclusively online. Um, Talk us uh, through that.
1: I think it's a um, a bit of a evolution of, of where our business has come from. So um, when we started way back in two thousand nine, we we were exclusively online then, mm. um, and we at those early days we found that that online just really wasn't where it is now. So um, th- th- there was no one really else online. So Dan Murphy's didn't exist online. I think they came in about 2012, um, and, and so uh, we had our first sort of year and a half, and we kind of realised that, that that we actually needed to, to to have a store so that we can actually get people coming in and visiting us, and and, and being able to transact it that, that way. Um, and, and I think what we've now seen is is, is as we've grown online, taken a much bigger share of the, the, the overall business, um, and, and because of our kind of location we had, so we've got a big warehouse well, or we had a warehouse that, that's tied to a, a tiny little store and the store never had a street frontage. So it never was getting the, the traffic that that a, a typical store would have. Um, and, and so I guess with that, online's growing really strongly. Um, and so and we've outgrown our, our, our kind of location. Um, and so we had to go in search of a, of a new warehouse, uh, which unfortunately meant we, we couldn't actually bring the, uh, the 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 store that we had with us.
2: Is it in a different area? Like, there's there's not a foot traffic uh, imprint where the new warehouse is. Is it more of an industrial area?
1: It's it's very similar. So we're changing suburbs, but we're only going 500 metres down the road. So okay. it's almost a uh, a straight walk from from where we are now. So it hasn't really changed. Um, but the the location again. It doesn't have a street frontage, the same as the existing one. Uh, and then from the actual lease of the site, we couldn't then put a, uh, a store on it either. Um, so that, that that combined with with the kind of restrictions and the, in the uh, license that we we're applying for it. Meant that it was it was going to be kind of a, a too hard basket for, for the store.
2: But I thought it was interesting in the the article that uh, our Vivian Topalovic did. You mentioned that you know it's hard to scale uh, a physical store. You know, I, I guess you can only get so many people through the front door. Or um, whereas online, you, you you do have the ability to uh, to to reach an entire country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, online uh, you can go the, the the length and breadth of the country. Whereas uh, when you've got an actual physical store, you're really limited to how far people are willing to drive. Um, So back in the day, we had people that were coming from the central coast and coming from out west. Uh, These days, there's enough other sort of bottle shops that are around that that people um, typically just stay in their kind of local area or just a bit outside of their local area rather than, kind of then trying to make it a a big trek across town.
2: It's interesting, you you mentioned you launched in 2012 at a time when, you know, craft beer was still in its comparative infancy to to now. Um, You know, there was a lot of excitement. um, and, And I think you even mentioned that when you launched um, you know the 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 hard to find internationals were um, you know a big part of your business. You know, and, and you'd you'd have guys like Experience It drop a shipment of um, whatever was the hottest international beer um, because we didn't have many breweries. And um, that's been a big change as Australia is now six hundred and twenty odd physical breweries and, uh, and and you know a significant number of contract brands on top of that.
1: Yeah, I mean. At the- I can remember when we used to get cases of uh, Brewdog Punk IPA and and Founders uh, All Day IPA, and they'd just absolutely fly off the shelves. Um, And and that was continuing for about two years. This was probably about 2014 to 2016, 2017. Uh, And then all of a sudden that that completely dropped off and that's as Australian craft beer really took off. So. It's, it's changed significantly in that, in that time and, and just watching that, that change from, from people really wanting that, that these beers that, that, that were considered great quality from overseas to, to now that there's the Australian beer that, that's produced that's super fresh, uh, as, tastes as good if, as, good as, as the, the foreign stuff, but because it, it, it hasn't had to be on, on the water being shipped over, um, is in much better
0: condition and I think to that as well the other thing is just Australians want to support local mm. you know I think that's um, uh, like yeah, just part of our DNA that we want to support small business uh, the brewery that's around the corner uh, the brewer that's behind it and the family that's behind it and I think that that all kind of plays into a um, a growing um, industry um, and as a result there has definitely been a shift and I think now what most of our range is probably seventy percent Australian and thirty percent kind of international and in the international space the stuff that still continues to go quite well is more of the traditional you know so your belgium um beers and and um, german beers Mm. Um, so those that have got like historical kind of traditions that are more than you know having started in the 1970s or the 1980s you know things that have got um you know a century of traditions
2: one of the other big trends and one of the things that drove the american um i'd imagine that the you know attraction of the international imports was The radical experimentation that we saw um, and we still see now that wasn't, that, you know, we were hearing about beers that we couldn't get locally. Um, These days, with a lot more breweries local who are all participating, as soon as a trend is seen overseas, you know, whether it's brewed IPA or cold IPA or cryo hops, we're seeing them hit Australia very soon afterwards and quite locally. What has that meant for consumers?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely, I mean, that the experimentation means that, um, again, you, you can keep supporting your, your local breweries, but you're getting what's happening overseas, you're getting these trends coming into the country straight away. So uh, I think it, it really just helps Australia kind of to stay on top of, of, of where those trends are going.
0: The interesting thing with the kind of experimentation, which I think we saw, I don't know, say about 2000, 2000, 2016, 2017, where breweries were experimenting with different styles and different ingredients, but then the QC wasn't necessarily there. And so you'd have some some real hit and um, miss beers. But I think with the quality and even just the ability for breweries to tap into um, local resources to ensure their QC is, is significantly better means that there was at one point where I think people were kind of saying... Yeah, just stop experimenting. Otherwise, I'll probably leave the category. Mm. Um, and now I think there it's permissible to kind of experiment. I mean, there's still some beers that they're a bit miss, um, but I think it's still it's it's more broadly uh, permissible just because the QC is actually um, increased generally speaking.
2: And uh, growlers was another uh, thing that we we asked about um, when we did the article, because having a physical store, I guess, uh, enabled you to pour growlers when when they were a thing.
1: Yeah, and that, I mean, that really, so we went to Growlers because back then this was before beer was kind of put into cans and, and before there was any sort of um, limited release beers that were going to, that were being made available in any sort of package format. So um, you, you could, back then, this was around 2012, you could only get new limited experimental beers if you went to the, the brewery or to a pub that had a, had a um, the, the beer on, on keg on tap. And so the whole idea behind the Growlers was, was trying to make these new um, limited release beers available to, to, to everyone. So, um, yeah, we, we started with a little kegerator um, station where we had, I think it was one sort of keg at a time and it then uh, grew from there and then got to a, a pegas system that we're... Yeah, you then have a much better quality um, uh, experience with it. The, the growler and, and the life of the, the bear inside lasted um, a fair bit longer. But then, over the last three, four years, we've then seen that through uh, beers all being canned and, and the, the the use of things like East Coast canning that that do limited canning, mobile canning, limited canning runs. Um, it, the the whole concept of growlers has really tapered off because you can now just get these limited release beers and cans.
2: I mean, that to me is interesting because there was a whole industry that sprung up around the supply of growlers. And, you know, at one stage I had a half and I just ended up having to throw them out because, you know, I'd I'd be gifted a lot of growlers or I would buy one. Um, But it was just an ecosystem that I never really got into the thought of lugging around unless you were specifically going to get a beer. They weren't a particularly convenient way of, of, of doing it unless you had that sort of deliberation of wanting to go and get a specific beer.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I completely agree with this. And I remember one time we actually worked with probably three or four other breweries and got a whole shipping container of, of the growlers brought in. Um, and, and so they take up a huge amount of space. Um, and so we had growlers and then we also had um, squealers, which are the one-liter equivalent. Um, but It's interesting when you look at, say, New Zealand, where I grew up, um, they didn't necessarily have the glass growlers, but they had um, what uh, what were called riggers, which were plastic PET sort of bottles. And and they seemed to be um, kind of quite welcomed over there. And and in a sense, you then didn't have to hold these. You, You could kind of use it for a couple of times and then throw it out as you kind of got sick of it or it the condition of the, the container wasn't that great, uh, but that was something that, that never seemed to um, appear in Australia.
0: And I think the other thing, Rich, is in New Zealand the the regulations. Um... A, a bit different. I don't think you have to have, you know, here it was exact sizing, and then the ATO brought in different regulations based off when they, from memory, when they dropped the size of, of the kegs and how how it applied with excise, um, to the point that at one stage we were then kind of lodging excise stuff ourselves as well, um, and so when you put all that together, outside of a, you know, a, de- a decline in demand from consumers, you then have a higher um, admin um, and cost to to actual retailers like ourselves that we're we're kind of doing and then you kind of go, well, people can get all these limited release beers in cans, there's less people wanting growlers and squealers, we've got to do more work to actually um, provide that, does that make a business case to actually continue to have them?
2: Yeah, Quite apart from Beer Cartel's business, it was one of the things I'd actually tipped or I, I saw a logic if people liked the idea of a growler and taking home some fresh tap beer that venues stock PET bottles that they can sell you know as one-offs um, because homebrew is often you know re-fermented or you know bottle conditioned in uh, PET so there's no pressure issue with, with with the bottles and it just seemed like a, a fairly inexpensive way to sell you know a, a liter, 750 mils of beer um, for that one-off thing in a you know, recyclable but disposable um, package. But yeah, it just—it was, was one of my predictions that that never took off, and I'm not quite sure why. I, I guess over the the ten years that you've operated the online store, you know, as I said, you entered the market in that really exuberant early phase of craft beer. Um, as you said, you were pioneering uh, online retailers of craft beer in a very exciting. Uh, industry and since then, the world of online retailing has changed drastically. Um, to the point that you know, the nation's biggest retailer, uh, Dan Murphy's, um, now has a very significant presence. Ha- has that been a challenge for you from the competition side of things? You're always going to get
1: kind of competitors as the area grows, but at the same time, that the, the whole space was growing. So um, the the from a competition side of things, like the, our business naturally grew just because the whole space grew. Um, and, and while you potentially have, have competitors like Dan Murphy's that, that then are getting kind of a, a bigger share because of the the, the the whole kind of slice of the pie is, is growing, then it, it's, it's almost like a win-win for everyone. So, yeah, I, I, I think the online space still has a fair bit of room for growth. that the the predictions are with Australia Post is is that that they're expecting that um, it will continue to grow pretty significantly over the next five to 10 years. And so I I think that there's going to just be a a constant sort of evolution of that online space. Um, We'll we'll always be juggling against competitors um, and there'll always be new ones that that pop up um, and existing people that that do things a bit differently and say, yeah, we'll, we'll be constantly kind of, refining our offer to make sure that we, we kind of remain relevant as well.
0: And having the likes of Dan Murphy's um, in the market also helps educate consumers. So, you know, in 2009, um, ourselves and a handful of, say, wineries, for example, that was selling um, wine or ourselves beer online, trying to educate, you know, what's delivery like, what's the expectation, mm. how long will it take? You know, so people have, have an experience with, you know, that helped to kind of educate the the entire market you know and so for example during COVID, when there was delays we weren't the only ones experiencing delays you know if, mm. if people were um, experienced del- delays with Dan Murphy's they knew it, it wasn't just isolated to just us so um, like Rich said there'll always be competitors it's just trying to work out um, yeah where do, where do we fit in the ecosystem.
2: That's one edge of the sword is the the, the education that somebody of their scale um, provides but at the the other edge of the sword is, I guess, that they become the default that people, you know, because of the their huge range and their price and their scale, they have a capacity to almost um, shade out competition. Is that, you know, a, a challenge or does that force you to become more specialised um, in what you do and the, the products that you supply?
1: Yeah, I, I think if you're trying to compete with them head to head, it becomes very difficult. So... Uh, as an example, we, we, we've, we probably haven't had like the likes of James Squire, Little Creatures, um, any of those brands probably for about five years, um, aside from the, the, some limited releases that they've done. But if you're trying to compete against them on a like for like basis, it, it gets very difficult. So uh, I think there's definitely a, a need to find your own niche and, and, and find elements that you can really drive and, and, and that, that people – are attracted to your business
2: for. I hadn't actually realized that you'd um, you'd not taken some of the, the, for want of a better term, you know, mainstream crafties or non-independent crafties. Does that then limit the growth that you can have? Because, you know, one of my observations, and please correct me if you, you don't agree, 12 years ago, we all thought that everyone would be drinking craft beer, that there was going to be a shift from mainstream lagers to, to craft beer because to our palates it was better, um, and I think you know it, it's been a disappointment that craft beer seems to have reached a stage, uh, particularly you know, pale ales and you know, the, the more challenging beers, and haven't really grown past that um, by limiting the beers that you've that, that you stock and not including some of those more mainstream offerings. Does that then limit the growth that you think that you can achieve in, 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 in the smaller end of the, you know, the, the pointier end of the um, craft beer market?
1: Personally, I, I think that there's, for us at the moment, and, and kind of thinking about where we are, there's enough growth that we can kind of achieve through other means than having to, to stock the, the, those um, brands at present. So, um, And it's not saying that, that we wouldn't ever. But at the moment, you, you you we've got a thousand different beers. You've got to juggle your your over, overall sort of stock on hand and and how much you've paid for stock, and you also need to weigh against what actually moves for you. So I I think at the moment, um, yeah, it, it, like it doesn't. But one of the things that, that that we've had over the last ten years, and and because online and its kind of infancy is, is you, you do need to have a constantly sort of changing business model and, and um, be able to change with different trends. And so I, I think that there will be opportunity for those kind of things going forward, but it means a change in our overall business model to actually get there.
2: That it's interesting because it's one of the <laughs> having my own little business. It's one of the things I hate. You never find a position where you can just cruise. You can never just go right. We've got the model, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> got, got yeah. the model nailed. Now we can just sort of keep doing this for for a while. You're, you know, even without COVID and even without some of the you know, extraordinary things that get thrown at us. Um, you know, you just never actually get to reach that stage where you just go right. Really yeah, there.
1: this is that we're doing well, we're cruising. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's—I mean—it's the same if you think about that sort of marketing side of things and, and online, um, social media, and everything. Um, that is like a, a very constantly changing space as well. And so to even remain sort of relevant and, and um, uh, seen in that, that it presents a lot of challenges as well.
2: Is there anything that you can do around that, or you just have to roll with it when these things happen?
1: I think it's it's very much being aware of, of what the trends are and following the trends and evolving with them and trying to I mean, yeah, ideally it's trying to carve your own space and your own sort of rhythm and way of doing things, but at the same time you you do need to be pretty mindful of, of what um what what is happening in the overall market.
0: And a lot of testing as well, you know, you never get it right the first time. So it's um, we've, like we always like to iterate and reiterate and, you know, learn from, you know, we'll have a project and, you know, say even our beer advent calendar each year. You know, we have a big debrief at the end of it, and we're always going, right, well, so what's what's next year? And just more things like that. It's, it's changed the way our box design, it's changed the the offering to our customer, it's changed the beers that are in there. You know, when we first started, um, they were basically just beers off the shelf, then we added a few more limited releases to it, and now um, Beer Cartel's advent calendar is, is all limited um, beers. So, yeah, if we, if we um, sit on our hands and don't do anything, um, like you said, Matt, you're you, you just like there's never a point in time where you can kind of coast or if you if you do it's probably for a month and you go right we've got that nailed and then you go what's next um and for us we're, we're always wanting to innovate um whether that be with marketing products the service that we provide our customers um the experience um yeah that that's that's at the forefront of, of our business
2: do you look at the number of you know other online stops that have popped up and I, I guess you guys are one of the most you know, you're the oldest but you're also one of the most uh, significant ones but you know at least once a month um, I get some, you know, enthusiastic entrepreneur sending a media release saying, you know, I'm opening up an alcohol-free, um, you know, online beer store, or I'm an indie-only beer store, or, you know, this beer store, um, to, to the point that, you know, when you guys opened, we covered yours as news, because it was actually genuine news, an online beer store, whereas the ones that we get now, we have to politely say, I know that this is news to you, but you know, this happens so often that it's actually just an ad, you know, you want us to run a free ad saying that, that, that you're open, which we don't do because I don't think our audience sees it as news and so we don't deliver it as news. But it must be hard when you constantly, you know, I, I guess every new one might take away a, a little bit of um, attraction whenever they launch, launch with a bit of a bang, a bit of a social media hype. People go and try them, um, hopefully come back. Is 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 that a bit of a challenge? Um, a lot of them seem to go fairly quickly as well, which I guess is the,
0: is yeah, the bonus. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be rude or anything, but I've kind of run out of fingers and toes on, on how many people have started in the last decade and kind of lasted one, maybe two years. And we're either trying to have it as a bit of a side hustle, hoping that it will become a full-time gig. Um, I guess our benefit of having started in 2009 is that, um, we've been able to establish ourselves and, and it is about, you know, um, changing things as we see the need to change and innovate. Um, but it definitely would be a lot harder to, to start right now. Just the same as, say, with with a brewery, if you were start to start as a contract brewer now, it'd be significantly harder to start as a contract brewer than it was in 2009 when there was breweries that were starting out as a contract brewer and then becoming, you know, then getting their own home for where they were actually going to um, have their brewery. And I think similarly in, in the online e-commerce space, it's easy to set up, but then it's harder to become established.
2: Well, that's what I was going to interject there. And so it's not hard to start a, a contract brewery it's hard to maintain one because starting is, there's so much excess capacity that breweries are advertising. um, And ultimately they don't care um, whether you start up and fail if you're sort of paying them for, 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 for the beer. Yeah. But it's, it's, that's the problem. Every new startup that fails after six months, you know, if, even if they get, you know, a hundred thousand dollars worth of sales, that's a hundred thousand dollars of sales that's coming from somebody else. Um, And if enough of them, that adds up to a, you know cream that's come from you know breweries that might have otherwise been doing better, um, but for that,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think generally, if you look at the, the online space, um, that the only real brand that that has kind of stayed around, um, being online only, um, has been, um, Boozebud that mm. that evolved from Bearbud, yeah, um, and, and I think they. They, in a way, did that by extending their, their kind of range, and, and I think that there was also sort of deep pockets there. Um, but for most people, if you're trying to start up something on the side, um, it's going to be very, very difficult. And I'd say if you are, it, you're better off actually starting from a, a bricks and mortar kind of side of things rather than trying to be compete online because. You've got a lot of people that you're going up against.
2: But that's one of the reasons I love these chats. I encourage, I don't know if you caught the one uh, that I had with Batch this week, um, you know, because another great brewery. I love the brand, um, but, you know, they, they've hit the headwinds at a lot of breweries at that size. They started wanting to be, you know, an inner West pillar of the community style brewery. Um, and you know, the the name and the the marketing were all built around that, but then suddenly they've been surrounded by other uh, very similar breweries. And uh, I, I like these chats because I think it's in everyone's interest on one level to talk about how awesome the industry is. And uh, you know whether it's an equity crowdfunding pitch deck or a um, you know uh, a, an article about the the brewery, and everyone sort of says you know it's awesome. And to people that aren't in the industry, I think it makes the industry look. Not just, you know, obviously wonderful to, to, to be a part of I and mean, we're working with beer, but then that everyone is uh, swimming, um, you know, and, and, and it's, it's very easy. And to, to my mind, that is one of the reasons that people are still jumping in um, to, to the industry and providing those competitive blips, um, you know, if, if they don't last because uh, we see so many breweries coming.
1: I think there's that, but... Um, there's also just the aspect that it's just a, a great industry, like it's a craft beer. I mm. mean, yeah, being involved in that day in day out, enjoying different kind of beers, and getting to understand those, talking with like great suppliers, I, I think they're all kind of reasons that that, that ha- means that the, the craft beer industry it is attractive for 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 people wanting to start something up. And uh, I, I don't think you can really go into to the craft beer industry trying to make a, a, a ridiculous income that there's much better industries for that yeah. um yep yeah. but it, it, if you are really passionate about it um it is an industry full of, of great people and, and that that and, and the actual product itself is, is i think two kind of key drivers to to getting started
2: on it. But that's the thing. When you add, you know, the the, the mindset that it's a it's still a growing industry, um, you know, with a rosy future, and it's you know that uh, there is money to be made or easy money to be made. And I still think that there is a bit of a gold rush mentality that's leading some people in. And you know, I, I look at some of the breweries that have opened in six or nine months after you, just see how dead the eyes are, you know, and, oh, yeah. and the, yeah. I wish I knew this going in, and, you know. Uh,
1: oh, totally. And, yeah, I mean, I, I look at people that are looking to start a brewery and, and going down the, the, the packaged or, or the keg kind of route, and you, you realise that when you're up against 600 other breweries, it, it's near on impossible to, to kind of get those sort of sales to keep your business going. So I think going forward – thinking of the size of the craft beer industry, it really is um, about brew pubs and, and, and that is a model to, to, to kind of, a, a, as a way to to survive. Otherwise, um, we're going to probably see breweries that, that come and go because it's just so hard, um, especially if you're having to, to try and create a sales team and, and just being out selling on the road, um, that, that all you can do to, to try and stay relevant is offer cheaper discounts and, and that that's at the end of the day is going to kill your profitability anyway
2: but I, I and i get the feeling bringing it back to retail that people seem to think that online is easier or cheaper than bricks and mortar because you know you, you don't have that physical location but i i guess <laughs> you, you you do because you've got a a warehouse of some description and then you've got all of the other costs
1: yeah i think yeah, you're probably right in that, that the uh, initial perception on startup costs means that it's, it's pretty small, and I guess that's why we started online um, when we first did, um, knowing that I mean we had um, a small amount of, of of funds that that we sort of put towards the business. I think when we first started, we probably did it with sort of I don't know five to twenty thousand dollars prior to to then buying the business that we did. But yeah, you can you can start with a much um, smaller cash base, um, but there's the, the actual money coming in is, is a lot harder.
2: But and I guess that's the problem. You guys were able to bootstrap. You know, you're a garage band like a lot of the craft breweries started small and hoped to to, to bootstrap um, into into growth. And you guys have done that very successfully. But you've you've also worked very very hard through the you know the, the craft beer survey and you know you you enter every retail award and you keep your profile and your presence up you know and a lot of those awards um, despite being accolades for you were also part of your marketing i would imagine um just sort as of show you yourselves as a business mm. but it would i i guess you do still see the people who think that they can you know side hustle their way into the industry but i guess other people um, who are, you know, even looking at, and I'm looking at the numbers that was in your um, equity crowdfunding campaign. Looking at the, you know, online Australian online retail spend per year has grown from 27.5 to 32 billion to uh, 2020 50.5 billion dollars. Um, you know, I, I guess people with deeper pockets than yours can look at all of the hype around Craft Beer, look at those numbers and think, well. Um, this, this is an industry that's ripe for a bunch of uh, cashed-up um, entrepreneurs to, to step into. Uh,
1: do, do, is that a worry? I mean, I, I think there's always going to be challenges, and uh, yeah, you, you never know where they're going to come from. Um, whether they're going to be the, the equivalent of a, a Dan Murphy's, I, I'd say Dan Murphy's will probably still be a, a bigger behemoth than them. So um, essentially I, I, I look at them as just being a, a, another competitor that you're going up against. Um, uh, that I, I guess you've also got things like, so Lime that, that created their own online marketplace that they had a few years ago, um, and they spent a, a fair bit of money on that and then ended up just shelling that. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, so I, I think when you look at things like that, you know that it isn't just a, a, an industry where straight away you're gonna have uh, complete success, even if you do have deep pockets. Um, there is a fair bit of work to be done in understanding it, and 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 making sure that you're you're sort of relevant to, to consumers out there.
0: Yeah, and ultimately, even with deep pockets, you know that usually means they've got um, bigger and bigger investors or private equity, or they might be expecting certain returns, and you know they're looking at at their their runway in terms of when when that's expected. And um, so I think yeah, even if people are kind of bigger than sometimes, it comes with Bigger questions and, and and bigger answers, if that makes sense. But,
2: but uh, yeah, again, uh, I, I'm wondering whether the, the retail space is the same as a craft beer space. You know, we have seen, um, you know, like whether it's a brand like Traveler that we've seen recently that you know uh, has a lot of significant investors in and a you know board of people that have you know been on the uh, you know board of Cub. That you know, on, on one hand, you think that they should know better um, yeah. <laughs> about how hard it is to create a brand. Um, but yet they think that they can sort of still have a crack at you know the, the better beers of the world. Um, so you know I, I just wonder whether there is a little bit of a mindset um, in, in in the online retail space where people think that if we can just sort of get it, scale it quickly, throwing some money at it, that a, a Dan Murphy will be the next Jimmy Brings or you know, Dan Murphys will buy us out or Coles will buy us out and incorporate us. Is, is there a mind? Is there an element of that mindset? I mean,
1: possibly. Uh... Generally, for someone to to have success, I I think you are going to have to have your own niche or your own way of doing things differently. And and that's what, if you think about Jimmy Brings, that they brought something completely new to the market that wasn't really existing at that time, that that was um, sort of on-demand, needed now delivery. It's done very quick, the limited range of of products. Um, Yeah, if there's... uh, People trying to, to go down that route, it, unless you are coming up with something different, you, there, there's going to be a huge cash burn that you're going to be going through to, to even become relevant. So things like being found in Google, um, making sure your ads stand out, getting uh, people onto your database so that that, that yeah, your costs sort of go down over time. Uh, that, yeah, there's all these challenges that, that um, you need to overcome.
2: And that's probably a, a good place to see you, you've brought that in um, to have a little bit of a look at, you know, one of the downsides, I guess, from your point of view of the equity crowdfunding is you have to publish the results so people like I can have a little bit of a look at them. Um, Rose, my yeah. job. I, I am a shareholder, so I got them uh, that, that way. Um, actually, yeah. I, 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 uh, I bought something online yesterday and forgot to use my shareholder discount. So uh, more um, for me. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, just wanted to have a, a little bit of a chat. Obviously, COVID uh, sucked for most of us, but no offence, you guys didn't do too badly out of uh, the, 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 the lockdowns and people being stuck at home.
1: Yeah, it, it, I mean, it definitely benefited our business. People being at home and, and not being able to get out uh, meant that, that, that and this was across all industries, online grew hugely over the last, um, since, basically 2020. So it's been, yeah, very, very useful for that. Um, and, and it's really helped take our business to another level, just as, as far as the level of growth that we've seen.
2: And, and speaking of which, you had some impressive growth from the 2021-22 20, financial year up from just a touch over $5 million revenue to you know almost $6.5 million revenue, which is a, a great outcome. But talk me through, the, the cost of sales went up by almost exactly the same. So cost of sales is a cost of goods sold, is it?
1: Yeah, co- cost of goods sold, yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah. So yeah. whilst you had a good um, jump in revenue, it didn't actually add to the, 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 the profit. What was the increase in the cost of the sales?
1: Uh, I'd say that generally, so you, you have your your sort of markup, and your markup kind of stays the same across, across your business. So yeah. Um, yeah, As you grow the business, your cost of sales generally should stay the same as a proportion so that they shouldn't really, um, unless you've got significant efficiencies, then that cost of sales generally is going to, as a proportion, going to be remain relative.
2: Okay, so like even with a big jump in, in revenue, you're not going to get a, it doesn't add a lot to the to the bottom line. Um, because I think there was, you know, so yeah, I mean, just very rough numbers: 1.5 million increase in revenue, and a 1.2 million increase in cost of sales. So a 300,000, dollars you know, as profit from from that um, uh, is that. So that that's just the the, the fixed costs of selling in retail.
1: Yeah, and, and it's it's kind of the, the same way that a brewery, as a brewery gets bigger, that their their cost of sales is a proportion which should stay pretty much the same unless they've got some significant gains on how they buy their their hops or their malts or something like that. It shouldn't really change
2: and uh, the, the other big um, jump in talking about the making sure that you're competing online was the advertising and marketing expenses, which I'd imagine would be the, 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 the Facebook ads and the um, things that we see um, in, in, our, in our feeds that almost doubled in, in, in the financial year.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it, and again, I think it, it's quite similar to, to most businesses operating online that the last year in particular. There's been a lot more competition, as as people have seen, uh, online is potentially considered a bit of a gold rush, um, perfect time to get in. The the downside is that everyone then is competing to uh, to try and remain relevant and and to get sales. And and so part of this is is driven by that. Um, The other part is is just general investment into our marketing. So we worked with uh, a marketing consulting company, over the last year and so part of that is through that as
2: well. So some of that was one off expenses not ongoing yeah, expenses. Exactly. Okay.
0: Yeah, so it could it also includes things like enhancements to the website for user experience and and ensuring that you know for every 100 people that start a basket you get more people that finish that basket with a, with an order and so yeah that project I don't know say it costs 10 15 20 grand you amortize that in theory across a the number of years because you get that gain but yes it has one upfront costs um, that needs to be outlaid um, that then fits into the the kind of marketing bucket.
2: Yeah. And and again, like this is stuff that I, I guess on one hand, these are provided to, you know, the the owners of the business, the shareholders of the business, but uh, it, it's it's not a full annual report. So some of these things aren't explained in the, um, uh, so it takes a little bit of dividing. I wasn't sure whether, though, and they were certainly things that you talked about uh, during the equity crowdfunding campaign that I think you had a 2% conversion rate. Um, so for every 100 people that came into the store, two were leaving having bought something. And that was one of the big focuses um, that, that you wanted to put in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for e-commerce, conversion rate is, is the, the be-all and end-all, really. So if you can increase that from 2% to 3%, you've got an extra one person that, that puts an order through for every 100 that, that go to your site.
2: Is that where uh, you know that, that jump in revenue has come from? Yeah, have, It's, what, 16, 17 months since the equity crowdfunding. Have you seen an increase in that conversion rate?
1: Well, I mean, one thing to say about conversion rate is, is during COVID lockdowns, you you naturally have a, a much higher spike anyway. So mm. it's harder to. I mean, if we look at conversion rate now versus pre-COVID, then our conversion rate would be much higher. If we look at it now versus during COVID, then then uh, I think during COVID it would be higher. So it's um it, it's hard to compare, but um yeah, I mean we, we've definitely been working a lot on on um, little. Elements of the site to, to, to make them, um, make the essentially make the shopping experiences as easy and as seamless as possible.
2: It certainly was for me yesterday. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> mind you, I, I knew what I was looking for. So, uh, uh that, that was good. So, just going back to the equity crowdfunding prospectus, was that 2% the higher rate because of COVID, or was that your baseline rate? Um, mm-hmm. I think two
1: percent was just a an example um, okay. within that. So just saying, if we could go, if you can go from two percent, three percent, you have got an extra person that goes through your site. Yep. Um, and that that, that brings an additional revenue.
2: Given you've invested in the software, and that was one of the promises or the targets that the crowdfunding money. have you seen post COVID a slightly higher conversion rate?
1: Yeah, if we if we look at that compared to to, to pre COVID, um, it's definitely increased. That's for sure.
0: And so what a lot of people in online um, talk about, Matt, is trying to kind of cycle through um, the what kind of COVID through at all businesses. Mm. You know, so like try, even trying to forecast now, you know, for our Christmas this year to try and forecast, if you're trying to look, or Father's Day that we just had, if you're trying to look at when people were locked down and forced to buy online compared to now where people are able to go back to the shops and whatnot, um, basically every retailer in the online space is, is trying to, um, piece it together with, okay, well, we've gotten more customers because of COVID, but then we, we can't bank it that we're going to have the same figures as what we had last year, but we can't just look at 2020. We've got to look at a bit of 2019 and try and piece it all together. And, and so everyone's talking about really trying to um, yeah, cycle through the the last 12 months. And so we're just getting kind of to, to, that, um, to that tail end where the, you can go, right, well, now we've got a bit more of a benchmark where we can start, like most retailers do, looking at right, well, how do we go last Christmas? How do we go last Father's Day, etc., cetera, yep. in our key periods, and then really being able to more easily kind of forecast. But yeah, definitely, if you take out that cycling perspective and compare um, conversion rates now compared to 2019, then yeah, they're up.
2: I, I think um, the results that came out, the shareholder update, and congratulations on the way, you know, a lot of the um, businesses that have taken equity crowdfunding dollars don't um, update their sort of shareholders very regularly. So congratulations on the way that you do that. Um, But it looks like uh, for for the financial year that you haven't reported on, it's a bit of a tougher market. You are going back to pre-COVID volume. So, you know, there's some negatives there where you're up from 2019 by, you know, fairly impressive amounts um, in in the COVID periods. But you're down over the similar period in the previous financial year.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's... yeah, it's quite significantly up to, to pre-COVID, um, but yeah, compared to, to lockdown when people couldn't get to stores, um, that the last few months have been, I, I guess, down on 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 2021, um, and, and that's uh, as you'd see for, for basically for all online retailers is, is that there's been that dip. Um, so it's, it's definitely not um, just exclusive to us. It, it, it's pretty common. Well, it is exceptionally common across the whole industry. I think that the only ones that would kind of uh, buck that trend would be something that, that's basically, with last year was possibly their, their first ever year and that, that they had very minimal numbers to start with and so they're, they're going into a stronger year this year after growing. Um, but I don't think they would be in the craft beer segment. They would be in something like... Uh, Teeth cleaning or
2: (laughs) beauty or something. We we saw something very similar with Dan Murphy's. Like Endeavour, when they reported their um, retail had gone down, but their hotel expenditure made up for it. And I guess that's the the the, the challenge with an online business or a retail business. Exactly. Yeah. One of the other things that I I noticed um, was the crowdfunding expenses. That you know, in twenty one twenty two it was, you know, over 10% of the amount that you raised went in expenses for the raise. Um, do, you, do you think, it, it, you know, obviously you, you had a, um, you know, a good cash injection um, that you've been able to invest on the, the things you've been able to do, but you know, is, is like a 10% cost of generating that money a good um, you know, rate of return?
1: I think if you're looking at it um, compared to other ways of raising funds, that the, the one thing with crowdfunding is is that because it's not purely on um, the return of the business but also on the, some of those shareholder benefits as well, then people are prepared to invest at a, a higher on a multiple than, than they would in a traditional investment um, uh, kind of raise. And, and so... Um, while it, it yeah it was i think about under 10 percent um I, I think it was still an effective way of, of, of raising it um yeah we, we definitely wouldn't have been able to raise the same amount of, of funds at the same sort of multiple if we'd just gone exclusively to 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 kind of one business and said that we're after um this amount of money so uh, uh, yeah I, I think there's still definitely benefits to it um, and I think that's part and parcel of, of why you've seen a number of breweries getting into to crowdfunding this year.
0: Some of those costs are kind of fixed in the sense that we can't use virtual for free. Yeah. Um, oh as no. much as yeah. it be great. So it, it's, uh, it's one of those things. It's, um, it, it's just a cost of, of that method of raising.
1: There is. So um, virtual itself, So that, that they're quite open. that they, they, they charge a 6% um, uh, fee on, on their, their funds raised then you've got things like yeah, yeah, sort of advertising costs and, and promoting the raise. Um, as part of it, we also uh, developed a, a, a constitution that we have now. So there, there, there's benefits in that. Um, there, there's going to be elements that, that, that we can have for the business going forward as
2: well. Yeah. So know sorry, just to your point that you know, virtual doesn't come free. I mean, I'd, my my views on not on the raising side of it, but the um the, the the way that it's raised, you know, virtual seems to be making out like bandits um from from the industry, and I'm not sure that that's a good thing. But that's uh, my that, that's just my question to ask. Having a look at 2022, big raise in revenue. Your profit was down, um, but I I, I guess some of that was a uh. Because you're investing some of that equity, there was expenditure that was from the equity crowdfunding raise. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was investment in 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 the future of the business that you, you hope will uh, pay a return in the twenty three results. I'm guessing.
1: Probably beyond that. So I mean, we, the, the we raised, I think it was around about one point four million. So uh, we had a really really good raise and welcomed in. Um, I think it was eleven hundred. Um, shareholders into the business and those funds were always for probably a, a sort of two to three year um, investment in the business and so um, yeah I, I'd still expect that, that there's going to be a level of, of, of usage of those funds over the next couple of years as well.
2: Actually one of the interesting things out of the conversation with the guys at Batch who also did a, an equity crowdfund was they? I, I was left with the impression they were a little bit disappointed at the level of engagement that their shareholders had in the business. Um, that they weren't, you know, they were hoping that they would have this army of owners that was going to go out and presatellize for them and and buy from the business. And it, it sounded like that hadn't quite eventuated. And and yet that's one of the the benefits that is very strongly sold by Birchall um, as as part of the model. Have you got any data around? whether your 1100 shareholders have become, you know, huge advocates um, like me, do they not use their discount? <laughs> I
1: think it's sort of a bit of a mixed bag. So um, yeah, people are definitely uh, transacting through the business with us um, and making use of their shareholder benefits and, and they do get messages from different people that they are um, talking to other people and and, and, and sharing the, the love about the business. So. Um, We really appreciate that. and um, Yeah, I think you you get kind of two two groups of people, so those that are super advocates and then those that are happy to kind of sit on the sidelines and and just um, uh, know that they've got this this little investment here um, and and just see how that that kind of goes. Um, The the one thing that we've found is is that there have been some great people that actually – invested in the business that we can kind of reach out to and just ask questions and, and tap into their knowledge and their expertise. Um, and, and so that that that's been a, a benefit that, that we've really seen.
2: You used the term investment there, and that's you know that's where I sort of uh, and I'm not not having a go again. Like I I buy with you guys not because I'm an investor, but because I think you're the best service. So none of this is criticism, and it's it's hard because it's more about the model. But you know, is it an investment? Did people invest in the business, or did they give you money because they liked the business without an expectation for a return outside of the?
0: You know, well, they they got a you got a shareholdership. So if you've got a shareholdership, is like that's is classified as an investment on the yeah, on very top But if, if I
2: if I invest in something, I want to get a return on that investment. Do you think anyone that invested at a valuation of twenty million dollars is going to get a meaningful return on that investment?
1: I think it's. I mean, that that side of things, it's it's hard to know where where um, a business could evolve and. and it really depends on if the business can find significant jumps, and that then kind of take, has the ability to take them. And um, yeah, not not all businesses have that. Um, I guess yeah, to your point, I'm sure people did invest in the business because they like the business, um, and I think that's in the same way that they put money into anything else because because they kind of like or that they that, that they find a. Uh, Attraction a, a or a reason that, that that they kind of believe in in something, whether it be an investment or or just for for spending money or buying an Apple Watch or whatever it may be.
2: Look, I. I... Not that I have enough money to spend a lot of money on stocks, but if I'm investing in the, if I'm putting money into the ASX, it's not because I like the businesses, it's because I think that the shares are going to go up. Um, I put money to you, well, I put money to you guys so I get access to the, uh, to see how the model works. So it was almost like, a, you know, just being a participant in it, So you, so you're but
0: I, I like the business. Yeah, and and some shareholders would have done that in terms of the like p- have put money into the business because of the the incentives that were there for them to get discounts, and they you know made calculations in their head and going right well if I do this and I and I'm buying from you anyway, I may as well get five percent off and free shipping for the first year or whatever it might be. Mention my five percent. <laughs> <Or> <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, I think there, there's a breadth of people. Like Richard said, some people did it because they um, they. Like the business, like mm. us, like like the team, or others, because they're buying from us anyway, and they figure, oh, well, if I if I put some some money into the business, then I I can access these discounts. And and yes, there definitely will be some people that are going, well, yeah, um, they are looking for for a potential um, investment that then has a return um, on a longer longer term perspective. But I guess that's
2: my question. You know, again, just sort of looking at you know when you see a um, almost thirty percent. Growth or a twenty-five percent growth from twenty-one to twenty-two, and yet the profit—you um, know—the the margin of the the, the profit to, to create a twenty million dollar business, you're going to have to you know really see a huge increase in that revenue number to make a a, a profitability number that would warrant an, you know a, would you know an honest valuation um, of of that. Um, I'd imagine. Do you think that's possible or is it just a nice little business in the meantime that people can get their, you know, deal with a good business with great beer and getting a nice little dividend in the form of um, their their discounts so long as they're spending more money?
1: I think one thing is that if you look at our kind of past as we, prior to COVID, we were kind of growing at 25% year on year Um, and if we continue to grow at 25% year on year, it takes us. In about five or six years to a, to a twenty million dollar um, turnover business. Um, so, and as that continues to grow, um, it definitely opens more doors and more opportunities. So, I, I think um, that yeah, I wouldn't be. We, we definitely don't have the expectation that we're going to try and just stay as a, a little business that, that that's doing what it is now. Um, but the, the idea is that that we're going to be able to grow and and, um, evolve a fair bit over the next while. So, um, yeah, that's where the focus
0: is. And, and to add to that, I guess the other thing is, is, you know, at the start of the conversation, we talked about needing to innovate and always being kind of nimble and changing things. And um, as you know, we've got the beer cartel business and we've got the Bruquets business, which is a, the wholly owned subsidiary. And, and um, there's plans for that in terms of how we can, you know, look to grow that, even just with that business um, leading into um into Christmas, so we, we put a wine range on, which is obviously not beer, but that's still, mm. you know, that anything that we do with that business that grows and, and we see success with is directly to, to the benefits of, of, of shareholders. Um, and so it's kind of going, right, well, what else can we do that will continue to grow it um, outside of just what everyone necessarily sees as the front-facing of, of Beer Cartel, if that makes sense? Um, and then even, you know, uh, joining the, the, the two sites that we had, one for, for Bruques and, and the one for Beer Cartel, and into the one... Um, location just as a cost savings in terms of efficiencies is is, is going to be pretty substantial um, and and we've seen that even just in in the last little while um, since we moved uh, the, the, the kind of bouquets business in, into that to that site um, so those things that's from a cost structure perspective um, seeing some efficiencies but then also looking at what what are we doing continuously different? In terms of either innovating or different range or different um, target market that we're trying to to access, to then um, go to where we're aspiring to be, which is, as Richard said, um, in a few in a few years' time, kind of growing the business.
2: And uh, I have to say uh, to, to to Richard um, and to the optimistic forecast, entrepreneurs have to be optimistic, and that's something that Nick Cogger from Better Beer um, gently, uh, you know, puts me back in my place when he points out that that's what is the essence of, uh, entrepreneurship is, uh, is being optimistic. Um, so, uh, yeah, and uh, I, I, give you all credit. So, uh, look, I've taken up plenty of your time in a very, very, uh, the busiest time of the year for you both. Um, mm-hmm. so thank you very much. And, uh, you know, congratulations on not just what you've achieved, but the way that you achieve it. Um, as I said, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, really a business that's a, a, a standout. Yeah.
0: Thanks. Appreciate it. Right. Thanks, Matt.
2: And that was Richard Kelsey and Jeff Hewins. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News and you would like to see us doing it throughout 2023, you can help us. If you're a business, you can advertise on the show. We can put your brand in front of the most engaged and informed readers in the brewing industry. If you're a listener, you can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service. Or you can join the conversation in our Facebook group or by emailing us at producer at bruisednews.com.au to share your thoughts. We'll be back this Friday with Bruised News Week, diving deeply into the news of the week.